Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Andy McVeigh. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. It's July 26, 2022. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And the first question, as you know, uh, is why wine? Well, it wasn't first wine. At first, it was marine biology. I was a marine biology student at Oregon State University, and I was failing. <laughs> I was doing a bad job at marine biology and at science in general. I, uh, when I, my first year at Oregon State University, I was taking physics, calculus, organic chemistry, and biology at the same time. And although I'm passionate and interested in those things, they were a little bit overwhelming. I was failing calculus and failing organic chemistry, and I met with my academic advisor, and he said, you're not good at science, you shouldn't do science. The great thing about scientists is they draw their conclusions from the data. and he did a good job at that, but he didn't quite consider some of the outliers, the, the things that didn't fit onto the line of best fit on the graph. And those were the things that made me what I am. And so I walked away from that meeting discouraged and a little bit at a loss for direction. And I found wine at, looking for direction. Mm -hmm. I took stock of what was important for me in life. I uh, so I have five siblings, and my mom grew up with seven siblings in a banks in a farm in Banks, Oregon, mm -hmm. an eighty-acre farm, and she grew up uh, knowing farm life. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, she became a teacher and an educator, and uh, married my dad, who was also a teacher and an educator. But they raised my, me and my five siblings to value the hard work and the lessons learned from farming on an 80-acre uh, mm -hmm. plot in, in Oregon. And I love farming. I love hard work. That's the, the, the this infrastructure of every one of my days, to work hard. Because at the end of the day, if I've worked hard, I sleep better and appreciate my food more. <laughs> and I love that. I wanted agriculture to be part of my life. And uh, I, I loved science because science is the nuts and bolts of life for me. It's the way I break things down and understand things down to a microbiological level, a microscopic level, and that helps me understand them on a macroscopic level too. Uh, knowing why things happen and how things happen uh, adds value to my life. So I loved uh, agriculture and science, but I had this other nagging thing, the thing that pulled on my heartstrings, and that was art and, and an ex a way to express myself that added value and uh, encouraged other people to be enthusiastic about life like, uh, like me. Mm -hmm. So I combined those three components. I, I thought, art, science, and agriculture, how do I find that in a career? And I started thinking about that. And I put those, th uh, those things together in wine. I'd been brewing beer and interested in fermentation and uh, there was also that kind of nagging hope that that 80 acre farm with the south-facing slope and needed a new career. And I thought, maybe if I taught myself, if I learned about wine, mm -hmm. if I learned about viticulture, I might be able to start a new career for that farm. That didn't work out. That's fine. But um, I had this, the, 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 the possibility seemed immense. Mm -hmm. And I was looking forward to combining art, science, and agriculture 
uh, in a career. So I changed my degree, uh, changed from biology major to food and fermentation science. And most of the time when I tell people that, they wonder if I'm telling the truth, like if food and fermentation science is a real thing. <laughs> it is, and at Oregon State University, that was the degree that was available. After I graduated in 2003, they opened up the option of enology and viticulture. But I changed majors and uh, retook those calculus courses, retook those organic chemistry courses. I uh, never could pull my GPA out of the, the dumpster the, uh, that those two had put me in, but I did better. I did great at organic chemistry, I did great at calculus, and I did phenomenal in wine science. Those are the, uh, having a reason to be there, having an end goal gave me uh, a reason to stay up all night and study all day, and it was fantastic. I, I, I've never looked back. I graduated in 2003 with a degree in food and fermentation science and a minor in chemistry. And I started uh, in, in the wine industry, commercially. That's why wine. I needed direction. And the direction was composed of the things that, that made me passionate about life. So tell me about the discovery of wine. If, if not, many, not many people come to college with much knowledge or understanding of what wine is or how it's made or anything like that. So tell me about the discovery process for you of, of learning the kind of the, the behind the scenes of wine and of sort of starting to develop that passion for it. Well, I think food science was a great approach to understanding wine because it didn't just teach me wine. It taught me fermentation for beer and cheese and sake and kombucha and pickles and sauerkraut and yogurt and bread. It was, it, in, food science is incredible. Not a lot of people pursue food science as a career or as an education path, but it's, it's great because it's every day. Every day we interact with food. And if you know it uh, down to the molecular level, it's, it's more fun mm -hmm. and it's more enjoyable. So I liked Oregon State's program because it wasn't just fermentation, it was food also. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just science. It, it wasn't just uh, lab science. I, we learned engineering and biochemistry and a lot of microbiology. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, chemistry, my worst subject in college was in what I ended up with a minor in. It was like an applied chemistry degree. And at that stage at OSU, uh, the food and fermentation science program was fairly chemistry focused, but engineering and statistics and physics and biochemistry, <clears throat> those things were great. It was well-rounded, and but ultimately it was set up to alley-oop undergrads into a graduate program. And my GPA was so horrible that I didn't have that to qualify to get into the graduate program, even though I, I had enthusiastic mentors to encourage me to go that direction. Uh, it wasn't in the cards. So um, I learned about winemaking from a very broad perspective. And in the long run, that's helped me be more creative in the cellar as well. So tell me about your first experience in the cellar. Yeah, so I graduated in 2003, and it was hard for me to find a job in the cellar. Oregon doesn't have, Oregon at that time, in 2003, early 2000s, didn't have a lot of assets for students to get into the wine industry. Uh, and I think it's still, work, that's a work in progress. We're doing better. But as a student at OSU, there wasn't a productive job board for me to work with. There wasn't uh, people knocking down the door for interns. Mm -hmm. I didn't get one unsolicited uh, a direction or mm -hmm. offer. Mm -hmm. I signed up for the uh, UC Davis and UC Fresno uh, listserv for jobs. 
I, and uh, they had like an email service where jobs would show up and it would be a list of jobs. And so I poached jobs from California. <laughs> and uh, I contacted Bernardus Winery in the Carmel Valley. And I only applied to like two positions in California and Bernardus got a hold of me and they said, how did you hear about this job? And I explained it to them and they got a chuckle out of that. I think it you know, showed some perseverance for the scrappy kid from Oregon looking for a job. Um, but I also looked for, I applied to the jobs that had the longest initial hire because it was a harvest gig. Mm -hmm. But in California, you can start harvesting late July, finishing up the, the, the years, uh, the vintage, the previous vintage, mm -hmm. and it can carry into November and December. So I started in July at, with Bernardus and carried into the uh, first day of December, and it was phenomenal. That kid who grew up working and loved working every day of his life, I got to do it all the time. And it was such a relief because I struggled through uh, college work. I couldn't sit still in a classroom. I fell asleep constantly. Uh, teachers were discouraged by my pr participation mm -hmm. because I would often sleep through the class. I was getting the work done, but not in a classroom. I wanted to move. I wanted to work with my hands. And I wanted to uh, stay engaged. Uh, working for me is very much a meditative uh, mm -hmm. opportunity where it keeps my body um, moving and productive so my mind can think. If I sit down and just think I fall asleep, like it's like a 15 minute gig. Uh, so I got to stay working all the time. I got to work six days a week, 10 plus hours a day, and I wanted to work that seventh day, but they wouldn't let me. They said, you gotta rest at some point, man. Uh, but it was phenomenal. I loved it. We, uh, I started filtering Chardonnay, and I learned about the world of Chardonnay, that we had like five different Chardonnays, and I learned, through, I learned about the variation in Chardonnay personality at, at the filter, mm -hmm. and that was pretty cool. I explored uh, the Carmel Valley and the hills in that area, which was completely different than the Willamette Valley in Hillsborough where I grew up. It was wonderful, it was adventure, and it was away from home. Uh, never really wanted to leave home after that. It was fun, but uh, Oregon is the land of milk and, hon <laughs> milk and honey for me. It's fantastic, it has so much to offer. But uh, I learned uh, the, all the nuts and bolts of winemaking that weren't taught at OSU. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, o OSU's program was great to get kids into a graduate program, but the practical application of winemaking was buckets and carboys. It was okay for research, and I was one of the few students who went out of their way to work for the pilot winery, mm -hmm. and that was great. I got two other vintages, under, two other harvests under my belt by working with, uh, with OSU's pilot winery, but it didn't teach me the practical knowledge that I needed to survive as a, as a functional winemaker. And, um, some people think that they can get a degree in enology and just step into a winemaking position or a senior management position in a winery. And in some areas of the world, particularly people with better grades than me or more scholastic aptitude, could probably step into that, into that area. Mm -hmm. And some of my classmates did step in, like really quickly skip that ladder. Mm -hmm. And kudos to them, but I wanted to make wine in Oregon. And in Oregon, winemakers need to know how to do everything, mm -hmm. from scrubbing the floors to fixing the forklift to public speaking and encouraging and teaching the story of wine. So um, my first opportunity in wine was at Bernardus. It was about a 50,000 case uh, production facility. They made Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone, white wines. Uh, and the team was small. We all had a lot to carry on our backs, and I love that because uh, the many people think about 
harvest as an opportunity to learn about wine, but it's also a, a time to build community and, and, and build a family. Mm -hmm. And although I don't keep in touch with that five-person crew very much, I still appreciate them and feel like that was the beginning of a wine family for me. You talked about the difference between sort of the, 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 the theoretical that you learn in school, the textbook that you learn in school, and, and the practical, and something that's kind of a common theme in our, in our interviews is that kind of, the kind of whoa moment when you get into the first time, you're, you're actually putting those things into practice. So tell me about what were the surprises for you? What, what were you not expecting about the work you were doing in that first, that first harvest gig? I wasn't expecting how quickly things could go wrong. <laughs> Uh, one one simple example of that uh, we were we did pump overs on large tanks because you can't punch down everything you know in Oregon punch downs are pretty common but mm -hmm. once you get beyond about two tons you can't manage it by hand so we were using pump overs for a lot of things and, and working with Bordeaux varietals where we wanted a little bit more gentle extraction because the tannin potential was very high in those grapes but I was doing a pump over of Merlot one night and it was late in the day and the wine the juice goes into a screened tub and a pump uh, pushes the juice up and over the cap, and I had it set kind of on autopilot, and I thought, this is great. I'm going to go do something else for a minute, because uh, in the cellar, you always have to be doing something else. Like staring, I, I mentioned earlier, I don't do a good job sitting still with one task. I've got to be doing something else, and watching the water, the, watching the juice and wine spray over the top of the cap is kind of boring, so I went to do something else. I thought that was on autopilot, came back, the sump was overflowing, the wine was all over the ground. I didn't know how much it was, but two gallons on the ground looks like a lot. I quickly remedied the situation, and my boss at the time, Jonathan Oberlander, who's mm -hmm. uh, since worked for Sylvan Ridge and started his own label, Jay Scott, you recently interviewed Just him. Just last week, yeah. Fantastic guy, I love him to bits. Uh, he said on my first day, Andy, there's uh, very few ways that you will get fired here. But if you lose wine and don't tell us about it, you're likely to get fired. So the first thing I did was go tell Johnny, I messed up, I, I misjudged the flow rate of the wine and it overflowed onto the ground. And he was like, all right, how much do you think you lost? I don't know, it looks horrible. And he's like, oh, that's really not that much, it's all right. So um, the practical reality of working in the cellar has really nothing to do with Enology. Enology gave me an incredible foundation to move quickly through the cellar. Mm -hmm. and to understand how to prevent problems and to understand how, why things turned out the way they did when they went good or bad. And it also gave me an understanding of how to predict success. And that's been incredibly useful for me. Mm -hmm. That understanding wine science helped me do better faster. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, you don't read pump overs and flow rates enough in textbooks. You know, I actually could think about plenty of engineering examples where they predicted flow rate and pump speed and all that. But um, yeah, uh, the, things could go wrong sideways in the cellar quickly, but with advanced planning and good communication, uh, things were really successful. And more often than not, I was very successful in the cellar. I liked it a lot. You mentioned kind of enjoying being away from home, but also kind of wanting to come back to Oregon. So I'm curious, at that point, you're, you, you've got your toe in, you're, you're excited about the work. What were you thinking about next? What were you kind of hoping would be the path forward from there? Oh, man, I wanted more money because <laughs> I wasn't making much money. Uh, back in 2003, I was paid $12 an hour, uh, which was the most money I had made in my life. That was fine with me. I, I grew up, my first jobs were picking blueberries. Uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, spending a month picking blueberries uh, at Desi Hodge's farm in Hillsboro. <laughs> Desi, Desi, thank you very much for offering all those young kids 
a place to spend eight hours in the sun picking blueberries <laughs> for a dollar twenty-five bucket because it taught me a heck of a lot about the value of money and the importance of hard work. Mm -hmm. And when you spend eight hours in the sun for a month straight and you make $165, you really value work <laughs> and your opportunity to get money. So at $12 an hour with overtime, working 60 plus hours a week, I liked that, but I wanted more money. Moving back to Oregon didn't give me more money. I started at $12 an hour, and uh, it's, but that's consistent between the Oregon and California industries. You won't make as much in Oregon. Uh, and when I moved back to Oregon, there wasn't a job. I had a degree and I had good experience and I contacted people and they said, uh, I'll, I'll hire you but only for harvest. Mm -hmm. I talked to Jacques Tardy when he was at Montenor and he was very, very blunt with me. And I love, I love how honest and direct he was. He said, I'll give you a, a job for harvest. It'll be harder than you want to work and it'll be less time than you want and it'll be less money than you want and you'll be laid off afterwards. And I said, way to sell me, man. <laughs> so I went back to construction. I had worked a lot of construction jobs uh, during summer, summers uh, while I was in college. And I heard through the network that Edgefield Winery was looking for a cellar master. And I thought, cellar master is a big jump from one harvest and a degree. I wonder if I'm going to get that. So I met with Davis Palmer, the winemaker for Edgefield. He was recently uh, transitioned into that position when I was there. And uh, we talked for 45 minutes, and I, about 45 minutes, and I had the job afterwards. And it was awesome. I th thank you very much, Davis, for giving my, me my first job in Oregon. <laughs> uh, I spent four years at McMinniman's Winery in Troutdale, Oregon, and it was a great uh, focusing of what I had learned at Bernardus. They worked with Bordeaux and Burgundy and Rhone varietals, and there was about 20 SKUs when I worked for Edgefield, plus about uh, 10,000 gallons of hard cider, which the, after, the year after I left, it doubled, and they've since uh, made an incredible hard cider program there. Mm -hmm. um, the McMenamin's Edgefield Winery was an interesting place to work. Uh, many of the McMenamin's properties are very creative and unique and one-of-a-kind places. That winery is definitely of that sort, 50% inside, 50% outside. The part that's inside is in the basement of a hotel that's 100-plus years old, and um, the part that's outside is exposed to a constant flow of tourist traffic and, and everyday customers from McMinimins, golfing, drinking, having weddings, going to the spa, vacationing. And a lot of those people have a, plenty of time on their hands to ask questions. <laughs> and so when I transitioned to Oregon, I was looking for more money. Didn't get that, but got more opportunity. Uh, um, McMinimins offered that, and it was great to work with Davis. And in addition to learning great functional survival skills of working in the basement of a hotel, I got to do a lot of public speaking, informal public speaking, because groups would walk by, I'd be out racking 24 barrels, and they'd say, what's, what's this? What kind of beer are you putting in barrels? Uh, the beers, the brewery's behind us, this is the winery, this is all the winery here. Wow, what about wine? And it was constant interest. And it was great, I grew up on, on, on a stage. I've been on a stage since I was 10 years old when I got to narrate the school play, the Polar Express, I was the narrator. I had the most lines in the play. I was happy about that, but I was on a stage and I've loved being on a stage ever since. Uh, I was, did drama and theater through uh, high school. And when I worked for McMenamins, I got to perform for these customers and tours who came through and wanted to learn about wine. And, but I couldn't talk like an enologist. I couldn't talk like a wine student. I had to talk like an everyday person. 
So it taught me how to speak to people at their level, and I thought that was fantastic. So huge diversity of wine at Edgefield, similar to Bernardus. Um, a small team that built, that extended that wine family. Folks that I worked in the trenches with left and right, and uh, you really learn to respect each other when you go through the challenges of life, and you get to uh, share in the successes. It was fantastic. And really creative wines also. Tell me about, you mentioned the sort of the creative space. Uh, tell me about learning to make, make those, that, that kind of space work for a team that's, that's a small team and a growing winery, how do you, what were some of the unique challenges to that particular physical space and what did you sort of learn about the practical aspect of winemaking? Yeah, I learned that Oregon wineries are really, um, they're not consistent, they're not cookie cutter, everyone is very different. Only the, the few largest wineries tend to have the same tools mm -hmm. and, and uh, capabilities. And I really appreciated that um, working at my most recent job at Wine by Joe, uh, working for one of the largest wineries in, in Oregon, having lots of opportunity and lots of tools and all the tools to do whatever job you wanted right. Most wineries in Oregon don't have that. They have um, a lot of jury rig stuff to make it work because this time of year, we need this room to be this, but the rest of the time of year, we need it to be something else. And at Edgefield, the winery is centered around a tasting room. And we had to work everything around the tasting room. The forklift had to go down to the tasting room and out of it. It was very industrial space shared by very front of house space. And I think a lot of wineries are like that. Like their tasting room is their barrel room and they just put a table down and a, a, a pretty tablecloth on and they start selling wine. So it, it gave me survival skills and um, it was great because those little puzzles that have one empty spot and you have to move all the pieces together to make a picture, that's what Oregon winemaking is. In every wine interview, they should hand the applicant that test mm -hmm. and see if they can get through it. They should also ask them how they play Tetris. I don't know, do you two play Tetris? Have you played that game? It used to be super popular. Like, um, you take little puzzle pieces and you sort them in and the more flat, complete lines you get, the more points you get. Some people frantically cram every piece down as quickly as possible because they are scared that it'll get to the top and they'll lose. And other people find the right time and the right piece. And once they get up to the top, they might lose, but then they get the, then they get the big payload. And every applicant in the Oregon wine industry should be asked how they uh, play Tetris. Because I've worked with people who frantically cram everything in as quickly as possible, worried that they'll be overwhelmed and lose the game and other people find the right time to do the right thing. And that's what I learned working in cellars, that the right time to do the right thing was how to manage small production spaces. It was a um, very applicable, applicable skill. I'm glad that I learned Tetris when I was younger. <laughs> and not just learned Tetris, but learned Tetris the right way. Yeah, yeah, well, I got more points. <laughs> Sometimes I did lose and it was catastrophic. And occasionally that did happen to me, like the time with the pump over at Bernardus. Uh, sometimes you, you put wine on the floor. And there were those challenges at Edgefield as well, sharing space with uh, public sales, front of house, that sh production space as well. But that's the reality for many Oregon wineries. So that, you mentioned not being sure how prepared you were for that job. How, how did you feel starting off kind of first full-time gig in, in wine, and how long did it take you to feel confident in the job you were doing? I felt good in the position. 
because I was ready to learn every single day. And because of the education I had and the practical experience at Bernardus, which was very diverse, it was a big winery but full of small pieces, uh, I felt really good. And I also felt anxious in an excited way, like I want to learn, I want to learn, I want to learn. So it was challenging, but it felt good. And I, um, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I was overconfident, but I did, um, I learned quickly. Mm -hmm. And that helped me get through it mm -hmm. fast. I think that's, that's an, an encouragement that I can offer that folks looking, in, looking to get into the wine industry, if, they, if they're wondering whether the, a technical approach to learning about wine is important, it is, and they'll learn faster and be more successful as a result. That was my experience with, with uh, transitioning it to Edgefield. So what came next after Edgefield? Yeah, so when I started at Edgefield, they explained to me, we expect you to, this is an important commitment. A cellar master is a, a, a key part of the winery. We don't want you to bail. Mm -hmm. We are expecting you to hang out for three years at least. So I said, yeah, right on, three years. And after three years came up, a fourth year came up, and a year prior to me leaving, I said, big picture, I don't see me staying here. A year before I left, I said, in my annual review, I said, I don't think I think I've got one more harvest in me, which subsequently I've been told by <clears throat> previous bosses that it's not a good idea to put in notice a year prior to leaving. Frequently people say, this guy's going to leave, well, we won't offer him the raise, we won't offer the advancement because he's going to leave. Mm -hmm. But I wanted, I wanted to show my cards. This is a it's a two-way street with employers. I, I don't need to pull any surprises on, on my boss. Uh, but also, my wife and I uh, were living in southeast Portland, essentially Gresham, it's the Rockwood district of southeast Portland, and I had a 15-minute commute, and I knew, the, I knew how to get to work because I memorized the traffic signal patterns in Gresham. I knew that when it was green light here, then it turned into a turn signal, and then the other, other direction would go, and then the other direction would go, and when I saw that traffic pattern going, I'd go a different way. And I felt... Every day I want to do better in life. When we do the same things over and over, we can do better. And traffic pattern, learning the traffic patterns of Southeast Portland was something that I didn't want to do better in. <laughs> I wanted to get, get out of, of Southeast Portland. I wanted to get closer to family. I was only an hour away from my family, but that was too much. Now I'm about 20 minutes from all my siblings and my parents, but two hours from my older brother. But I wanted to get back west. Mm -hmm. And my wife grew up in a similar situation and she, we both needed to move. So, and all of that took a, a lot of preparation to sell a house and move, move our, our operation. And, uh, so I gave, my, um, I gave my notice a year in advance and it turned out that that notice landed, uh, the opportunity to move to the next job landed the day after I started harvest at Edgefield, which was kind of a bummer. I, I feel bad about that, that we crushed 30 tons of Merlot and I took off for the next gig the next day. Um, but I, I gave a year's notice and I was transparent about that. I worked through it the whole way. But I started at Wine by Joe in September of 2008 as their cellar master. Uh, Wine by Joe had had a, a number of mid-level managers prior to me starting there, and uh, so many of them were moving up and out to winemaking positions in other places, but um, really quickly I saw the opportunity for a long-term uh, long ladder to climb. And 2008 was a great vintage and an excellent opportunity to start at Wine by Joe. 
What were your first impressions, uh, given, given the experiences you had, what were your first impressions of the operation there? Big and well, well, uh, well equipped. Mm -hmm. uh, and de dedicated production spaces. Forklifts that could drive in and out of the production space. More than one forklift, more than two forklifts, five forklifts, six forklifts, forklifts of different sizes, um, a large uh, harvest team. Mm -hmm. Not just adding one or two people, but uh, two shifts of people, uh, high communication demands, uh, every tool that you could think of to, to make wine, small, small production tools, large production tools. Many wineries try to make use of one tool for small and large, and it's not suited well for either. Mm -hmm. it, and the great thing was that all the tools were there, and all the, all the grapes, too. A lot more grapes. We were doing like I don't know, 200 tons or something like that of grapes at Edgefield. And it was a large task with the equipment and the space that was there. And the uh, wine by Joe was, I don't know what it was like in 2008, but we did over 2,000 tons regularly, over 1,000 tons, over 1,500 tons. And my experience was in the Dobbs Family State portion where it was more like 200 to 300 tons. Mm -hmm. And it was all the small tools and all the small fermentations and being able to track everything independently. And I thought, this, this is it. I'm in the money now. All that research, all that scientific interest and aptitude and, and planning, this is the place to be. We got to take nine tons of fruit and split it into different one and a half ton bins and inoculate it and manage it different ways and temperature control and that was cool. And not just Pinot Noir, but Syrah and Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Syrah and Malbec and Tempranillo and Carmenere. It was so cool. Southern Oregon, Willamette Valley, custom crush uh, uh, opportunities to make different styles of wine, mm -hmm. sweet fortified sparkling. It was incredible. And um, so there was nothing to go but up. I started as the cellar master in 2008. And because of the kind of mid-management turnover, uh, I got to climb quickly. My boss, uh, my boss at the time left in to, uh, really quickly right after harvest, and they hired somebody else. That person lasted one harvest. And in 2010, I was promoted to assistant winemaker. Uh, three years later, I uh, negotiated the opportunity to be the associate winemaker for custom crush winemaking. There were a bunch of Custom Crush clients, not just Dobbs Family Estate. Dobbs Family Estate had <clears throat> about 15 wines to, to make. And that was, that was awesome. And, but we were bottling on average 40 wines a year. And a lot of, I think um, people who know about bottling wine and winemaking think like 40 wines. That's like, how do you keep track of that? Because it wasn't just 40 wines from start to finish. Mm -hmm. You don't start with 40 and end at 40. You start with 120 and you end with 40. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of detail to track. And that's my forte. I love detail. And that's what I had learned from, from school, to take a lot of variables, simplify them, isolate them, control them, and find the best way to put them together. And so in 2015, I had been working with and managing many of the client wines uh, for quite a while. And I uh, was promoted to associate winemaker for custom crush winemaking. And uh, endless opportunity because it was a big operation, and they needed and they needed a lot of help, a, a, everybody to be involved. So, mm -hmm. a lot of public speaking events, a lot of uh, opportunity to work with with the wine club, and ultimately that that led to uh, me taking on the position of winemaker in 2017.
I want to talk about all those roles uh, kind of individually because there's so much so much involved in each of those roles. So tell me about um, the, let's talk about the custom crush part first because I think that's always something that's that's kind of mystifying to people outside the industry is how custom crush works and what role you play. So, so tell me about learning the learning the side of custom crush and what were the kind of special needs that you had to bring to that kind of position. Special needs is a great way to put it. There's a lot of special needs in Custom Crush. And I, I love that because I love service. Uh, before, when I finished, uh, when I was getting into my senior year at high school, I had the opportunity for early release. And being a kid who didn't sit well in, in class, uh, I wanted to get out and work. I knew that if I worked, I could make money and that would make things give me more opportunity. So uh, I learned about service. I worked in coffee shops. And to this day, I leave those barista positions on my resume because customer service is huge anywhere you go, not just in front of house and in retail, but in, in, in just dealing with people every day. I want to help you. When I meet somebody, I want to help them. And I, that was so gratifying to work in coffee shops and help people. They come in, have a bad day, they need to talk to somebody. A lot of people treat baristas like bartenders. And I love that service. And when Custom Crush clients came in and said, I want something ridiculous, I would say, let's talk about how to make that work for you. Mm -hmm. And Custom Crush clients often would ask for unreasonable things because they had learned about Oregon being this opportunity for a, a ceilingless quality. And they often wanted to take uh, grapes with some limitations and turn them into ceiling less wines, mm -hmm. <laughs> into unlimited opportunity. So it was great to listen to what they were interested in, figure out the best plan, how to make that different than the other wines that we were working with. Because although it, it, was, a, it was a large winery with a lot of tools to do good, there were sometimes very uh, uniform approaches to winemaking. And with a Custom Crush client, I got to ask them what they wanted their wine to be. So we got to change up yeast and extraction uh, uh, fermentation styles and barrel programs and uh, a lot of small, a lot of small um, production sizes too. And that's, that's tough. A lot of people think that small is better. Small is more restrictive. And uh, mistakes show more easily with small lots. And uh, I've definitely learned the the benefits of blending and the benefits of putting eggs in mini baskets and the minimum fermentation size that we could get away with and still be successful. So uh, Custom Crush was demanding of service, demanding of people skills and professional skills and how to communicate and set expectations from the start. Like, mm -hmm. this is what you want. These are going to be the challenges. I think we're going to get here and then talk about it the whole way through, always updating expectations. When it comes to expectations, uh, obviously managing expectations is a big, big part of it, as you mentioned, kind of the, the, ceiling, the ceilingless notion. How do you manage expectations and how do you feel when you're working with Custom Crush and you're working with all these different people with all their, kind of all their different ideas, how do you feel, where does the capability come from to give each of those projects its own attention and to make sure they're all their kind of own unique product? Well. It's, it's pretty easy because it's not like it's the same person, it's not like it's the same entity asking ridiculous things. Each of those programs comes from a person with a unique, a unique point of view mm -hmm. and their, their label is set up for that point of view. So um, the expectation that it's going to be different is there from the start. Mm -hmm. 
No five custom crush clients comes in and says, I want Pinot Noir of all the same style. It's all different. So from the very beginning, the expectation is set that it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that clear communication, uh, I, have a, I have a professional mantra of um, communication is the root of and solution to all problems. Everything can be solved by good communication. And uh, I'll spend just a second on that topic. I've been on a stage communicating rehearsed lines and planned programs for a lot of my life, and I had to learn how to improvise those responses in that presentation at, at, at Edgefield. And I thought that I was a pretty good public speaker. And a number of years ago, Wine by Joe provided the opportunity to take a public speaking course from Distinction Communication. Uh, Julia Wolf, I believe is her name, and she taught me one of the most important lessons that I've learned about public speaking. I thought I knew a lot. I learned a lot from her. Fantastic opportunity. Thank you, Julia, for uh, teaching me about public speaking. Uh, she said, speak to everyone always. And each one of the Custom Crush clients has a different opportunity, different needs, and a, a, different, um, a different opportunity for me to serve, mm -hmm. to provide service. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought that Custom Crush winemaking was very rewarding and ultimately pretty simple as long as you communicate. Speak to everyone always. The root of and solution to all problems is communication. <laughs> and uh, that, that was a... a I, I didn't learn that the easy way. Like, I say that kind of cheeky, like, there's a lot of problems out there. You got to talk it through. And I had to learn to challenge the, the customer, the client, to, um, to thoroughly think about the pitfalls of their business plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I also learned that starting my own label was something that I never wanted to do. My goodness. A lot, a lot of treadmill work, just spinning your wheels, and, and I'll, uh, I think uh, that, that's very challenging. And I think that's um, we'll probably get around to this later. One of the, ultimately one of the, the big challenges of Oregon's wine industry is a lot of small business plans that are kind of spinning their wheels. I didn't want to spin my wheels. I loved being a production winemaker. I loved being a public speaker. I loved the creative uh, process, but starting a business wasn't my forte. I'm not trained in business, and to be productive and, uh, and successful, starting a business uh, wasn't something that I wanted to do. But I was happy to manage the wines for those Custom Crush <laughs> clients because it gave me opportunity to make more wine. And uh, that's another thing. Uh, through, I've listened to a lot of the Oregon Wine History Archive uh, interviews. Not the, not the videos, because I have a hard time sitting still. And YouTube does this crummy thing where you when you walk around, it shifts the direction on your phone, and it starts the interview over, or it stops it. So I've tried to listen to the videos, because I've run out of uh, the podcast. I've listened, to, I've listened to all the podcast interviews. Um, and I learned from uh, so many lessons from those that starting your own label comes with huge challenges and people kind of spin out when they do that and they like keep like I put all this energy into it I'm so passionate about it I think we need to re uh, rebrand passion passion is emotional investment and people put a lot of emotional investment into their labels and I saw that through custom crush clients we bought our farm 
We transitioned the family farm into grapes. We grew the grapes. It took three years to get a commercial product. We harvested the grapes. We brought them in. They're like our babies. They're the best version of us. And now we turned it into wine. We put it into, we created our own label. Some of the labels aren't that great. And we created our backstory. And then we sold it to people and nobody bought it. So we sold the wine to a distributor and the distributors were flooded with everybody else's wine and they, they couldn't learn our story to convey our emotion, our emotional investment, our passion, and that's where the sale stopped. Mm -hmm. Oregon wines need to be sold on emotional investment because they're often not sold on functional economy. They're not affordable wines very often because uh, and we'll probably circle around to this too, but um, the, I loved working with the Custom Crush clients. It really showed me that I didn't want to start my own label. I didn't want to start my own label for many of the challenges that small labels have. But um, I think I'm, I'm probably too far off on a tangent. Maybe you could help me uh, get, get on track. Sure, absolutely. Um, we'll come back to that because I am very curious about your thoughts on that. Um, uh, tell me about the unique challenges. You mentioned Wine by Joe, one of the one of the largest wine producer producers in the state, uh, and you're working for you have both the Dobbs family estate side, you have the Wine by Joe side, you have all the custom crush side. What were the unique challenges to, to that position for you, and how did you, as as you were kind of working your way up there, how did you navigate that and kind of find the the best way for you to be there, the best like your your own niche there. The things that helped me, I. I, f I feel I climbed that ladder pretty quickly and pretty effectively. Uh, ultimately, I had this idea that uh, I wanted to be a winemaker. I didn't know how long that, that would take. Gretchen Bach, a, a former supervisor of mine, had a consistent question in interviews. She would say, how long does it take to become a winemaker? And it was an open-ended question. We didn't have that answer. Nobody really does. But testing the, the applicant's interpretation of how long that takes is important because it sets expectations. When they are brand new and they say, I want to be a winemaker in three years, and they don't have any, any education or any experience, it shows some sh um, short-sightedness on their part and that their learning curve will be steep. Uh, it took me a long time to be officially a winemaker. I didn't really care. A about that title, it was more about growth. And at Wine by Joe, I was able to grow steadily. And I grew steadily because I wanted to help with everything, no matter the challenge. Let's get it done. Very optimistic. Uh, life and career expectations kind of narrowed that optimism as, as, I, as I got further into the industry. But the thing that helped me grow through those positions was uh, a concerted effort to be productive and do better and willing to help. Mm -hmm. That's essential for folks who want to work for small businesses. And although I was working for one of the largest wineries in Oregon, it's still a small business compared to many things in the world. And uh, every, it was always a team effort. Every single, there was about 30 people uh, working for Wine by Joe when I left in 2021. And every single one of them hold, held a unique role. And when one of them wasn't there, sick, injured with family, on vacation, we were missing them. And that was super important for me for community and c expanding my wine family, understanding that every role at an at a Oregon winery is unique. That's super important. Mm -hmm. And when I was a cellar master, 
I loved being a cellar master. I wasn't like, oh, one of these days I'm gonna be an assistant winemaker, then, then I'll, be, I'll be in the good spot. And when I was an assistant winemaker, I didn't think, one of these days I'm gonna be a winemaker, then I'm gonna be in a good spot. I love being a cellar master. Cellar masters are super important for wineries. Loved being an assistant winemaker. Very important for wineries. Many assistant winemakers are doing a winemaker's role without the title. That wasn't important to me. When I introduced myself to people, I didn't say, I'm the assistant winemaker at Dobbs Family Estate, but I'm really the winemaker. I'm doing all the decisions. <laughs> Joe's like doing other stuff. No, I was there to help. I was, mm -hmm. that, that's, a, that's a role for every assistant winemaker to recognize and appreciate their position. And I love that. I wasn't champing at the bit to get the next title so I could earn the next merit badge of my winemaking career. It's just fine. I, I, uh, being humble and appreciative of every stage in, in your career is a successful uh, personality trait. Kind of went into my next question there. I was gonna ask about the assistant winemaker role. I know it kind of took them out of order here. We talked about custom crush first, but assistant winemaker in a large winery, as you say, you're doing a lot of stuff and a lot to keep track of. So take me through the, your specific experience of what is it, what, what is it to be an assistant winemaker at, at Dobbs Family State and Wine by Joe? The assistant winemaker role was to manage day-to-day -day activities of winemaking from grape to bottle. It meant uh, organizing the, in, the harvest crew, scheduling hours, and for uh, 12 to 16 people for two months, that's, that's, a, that's a big job. It meant uh, taking verbal instruction and turning it into written instruction, being able to convert those things, sometimes on the fly, sometimes on the back of a scrap piece of paper, but it had to be we had to have written instruction because there's a lot of failure. The importance, the, uh, the root of and solution to all problems is communication. And verbal communication is key, but especially in challenging environments, it has to be written. Um, folks in the wine industry who are getting started, when, you're, when your supervisor or winemaker gives you verbal instruction on blending things around, that's a risky situation. You need written communication. So get, get it in writing, folks. Um, assistant winemakers need to convert verbal to written. They need to work long hours in demanding environments. They need to be flexible and know that that grape truck, when it was supposed to show up at three o'clock, may show up at five, may show up at six, the crew's waiting, then it gets canceled, and everybody's been hanging out for three hours for nothing. It was a demanding position, a stressful position, and something that took 100% uh, focus during harvest for me. Uh, the rest of the year, it's, um, planning, looking at that bottling deadline and working your way back and scheduling everything in advance of that. Um, looking at the goal and measuring your steps to get there successfully. Not sprinting the last little bit because you were too slow before, but um, planning, planning, planning. I love that. I, the feedback that I got at Wine by Joe was, Andy, you rarely take direction from me. You kind of tell me what we're going to do and ask for permission to do it on schedule. <laughs> I thought, great, right on. I kind of like telling my bosses what to do. <laughs> but also with the humility that they, I needed that from them, but it was managing up to, to, to promote communication. Ultimately, that was really successful for me. Asking, saying, this is the plan, what do you think about that? This is the solution, do you want that? If you don't want that solution, here's the other solution that I can provide, providing solutions. Because winemakers are, um, are very busy, especially in a large winery, you need to know that the winemaking isn't always the thing driving the winemaker. It's business management, it's employee management, it's 
anticipating the next thing, that it's maybe years in advance. Uh, so communication and planning and um, uh, taking measured steps so the result is, is reasonable. I think that there's potential for a lot of unreasonable things in the organ wine industry. It's a bit of a tangent, so I'm hoping we can circle back around there. But that's what, that's what it was like to be an assistant winemaker. A lot of planning and taking measured steps so the result is reasonable. So at this point, you've, you've been in the industry for, for a good you know, f uh, 12, 14 years before you become a winemaker. You've had lots of bosses. You've had lots of roles. 2017, you become the winemaker. Now suddenly, it's, you're on the top of that kind of pyramid. And, and so tell me about that perspective for you, um, having worked your way up there and ha having all these different supervisors over the years. What was your kind of, what did you want your style to be? And what was the reality of being a winemaker at a, at a spot like that? Yeah, so the shift to winemaker was huge. I thought that I was a pretty competent winemaker in 2016. I had been a, a winemaker for the client program. I had a good, solid st uh, structural foundation of practical winemaking, but also theoretical winemaking and, and good industry knowledge, good science behind my decisions. But then winemaker, the buck kind of stops there. Like, you want to set the yield in the vineyard? You want to set the pick date? You want to set the winemaking parameters? I had a lot of opinions on that, but when it came down to my, my decision for everything, it was a new level of stress. I didn't expect that. In 2017, I thought, uh, now I got, I got a, there's, there's 13 vineyards. There's probably 40 different blocks of grapes to work with, and I'm going to turn that into 65 different fermentations. The Custom Crush clients will add another 40 fermentations. I'll manage up to 117 fermentations over two months uh, over 65 barrel programs. It was a lot, and I loved it, but it was very stressful and exciting. But I remember those first pick dates, like looking at the weather, looking at the crop, looking at the, the phenolic ripeness, the maturity of the grapes, figuring out the balance of sugar and acid and how that would transfer into wine. Fortunately, Wine by Joe was set up with a tremendous lab. Derek Shedd was the enologist for many of my years at Wine by Joe, and Brad Winter is the lab manager now. And those two guys, phenomenal support. Numbers, 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 and accurate numbers, and things that we could rely on. Mm -hmm. And I love numbers. I'm, I've, I'm trained to understand the science of, of winemaking, and translating that into the stylistic goal that I was interested in, the artistic interpretation of when to, when to pick grapes and mm -hmm. the numbers and the fermentation and the barrel program and the wine style, that was challenging and exciting. So, but it was a, a huge learning curve because it's a lot easier when you have somebody else to have, have somebody else to bounce the ball back and forth. You know, when you're taking turns shooting free throws, it's not just somebody bouncing the ball back to you each time. You each have to take a turn. But when there's only one person taking a free throw, you, that's, you, it's your shot. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, fortunately, 2017 was a phenomenal vintage. It was a large vintage. Uh, we did 25% uh, yields, 25% over average. Uh, that created some issues, but being a large winery, we have a lot of flexibility in that. Uh, the wine quality was great. There were certainly challenges in 2017. We had a week. We had a warm growing season followed by a week of rain at the end of September. Within 17 days of dry, warm weather. 
in, Oct in October, 17 days of dry weather, 2017 was a, a, a very fortunate. And the wines turned out great, and I thought, this is very successful. That feels good. Uh, but I'd been, I'd worked the 2007 harvest, I'd worked 2010, 2011, I'd seen the challenges of cooler vintages and knew how to get through that. More often than not, we were dealing with warm vintages and advanced schedules and, and managing ripeness and intensity. I liked it all, and it was a, a steep learning curve. Yeah. You talked about having a lot of opinions about, you know, if I'm running, if I were running things, I'd do it this way. Kind of, I, I think we all have those opinions. Uh, tell me about taking over an established program like that. Uh, was there pressure to keep things as they'd always been, or did you feel like you had a fair amount of flexibility to change things up if you wanted to? Well, yeah, that's a dynamic relationship because Dodd Stanley State was started in 2002, and in 2017, I had the opportunity to make winemaking decisions to an extent because there's a thousand plus club members that you need to support. They support you, you support them. They had an expectation that the wines that they loved would be there at that vintage. There's a sales and marketing department that says these are the wines that we need to make to be successful. That's part of our business plan. If you have creative winemaking ideas, that's fine, but we have the business plan. And I also had, um, I've learned, I've, I learned from everybody that I work with, but one of the lessons that I learned from Joe was uh, next time it's gonna be better. It feels good to have accomplished this, but next time it's gonna be better. It's not a very satisfied approach to winemaking because next time it needs to be better. The wines that we've made, the wines that we've released, the wines that have done well, the wines that customers like, that's great, but next time it's gonna be better. Mm -hmm. And I wanted things to be better. And there were some experiences that I had, a lot. I, we had a lot of data, like just for some practical examples. There was one red wine yeast and primarily one white wine yeast at, in the Dodds Family Estate Program. And that's great for control. When you set up a, a scientific experiment, you need some control. And having one yeast is valuable for that because then you can test everything else around that. The clone, the block, the harvest state, the fermentation temperature, um, lots of different things. But I wanted more than one yeast. I wanted more variables. I wanted to make it more complex because uh, I, I think diversity in wine, the more notes you have, the more entertaining it will be. So I changed up, I, and I had this expectation that it, will, that it needed to be better. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it could be better with more components. So I added variables. Uh, no, no more one yeast for all the red wines. Six yeasts <laughs> and variable fermentation patterns and, and regulations and tools. I changed that, I changed all of that. And it was a risky move, but the wines turned out well. And I could get to the end point from a different route, taking a new path, a less, a less tread path, sure, but I could get to the destination and have a more scenic route on the way there. Mm -hmm. So I changed things up a lot, and the results were good, and people liked them, and it showed that, being, that creativity was something that we could increase in the winemaking program. I love that. So you talked about 2017 specifically, kind of in part of a string of very warm, fairly, I guess, easy, for lack of a better word, harvests. Uh, that changed pretty quickly. I know 2019, obviously, we'll get to 2020 in a second. Uh, tell me about adapting in those, in those next couple of years to the, the changing harvests you had, and uh, what were the biggest sort of changes for you and how you handled the various, those, like 2017, 18, 19, how you handled the various years? 
Yeah, um, there's a lot to talk about those vintages, the pros and cons. I'll narrow it down to one example. In, in 2017, I went back to the drawing board and I started over with all these different types of yeasts, different types of fermentations. There was a lot of new things. And generally they worked, but there was, there was ways to do better. In 2018, I applied those again. And 2018 was generally a successful vintage. There were some challenges that were non-vintage related that I had to learn from. But in 2019, I had been trialing all these yeasts and doing better with the yeast and finding what worked and what didn't work and how to reapply it. And I wanted uh, to be working with uninoculated fermentations. Uh, we had custom crush clients who were interested in uninoculated fermentations or low SO2 management to let the, the yeast that come in with the grapes um, be expressed more fully. Mm -hmm. And in 2019, I had, I had been playing with uninoculated fermentations and I had a plan in 2019 to do a lot of uninoculated fermentations. There was good tools that I had applied uh, that we had seen to be successful and I was going to do like 10 to 15, maybe 25% uninoculated fermentations. This was going to be a big deal. And in 2019, there was a big um, a fruit fly infestation and the fruit flies were laying their eggs in the grapes. And you could pick the grapes and the cluster would look good and we'd leave it in the fermentation. It wouldn't get sorted out. No overripe, no, no underripe. We, I mean, we could take out overripe and underripe, but we couldn't take out the larva from inside the grapes. We weren't seeing that. Mm -hmm. And when we processed the fruit, I have a picture on my phone of a black fermenter and it's polka dotted with white specks of larva climbing out of it. And I thought, oh man, that's a lot of spoilage potential. We're not doing the uninoculated program this year. All that changed. Mm -hmm. the, each vintage presents its own challenges and has to be adapted to. The winemakers, my winemaking philosophy couldn't be adamant. It couldn't be dogmatic. It had to be flexible. Each vintage changes. And I love the freedom of uninoculated fermentations when the situation allows it. And I love having the experience of knowing which commercially derived yeast is going to be most productive depending on the situation. Leaving unsulfided fruit to languish in a fermenter full of fruit fly larvae while you want your, your vineyard-born yeast to take over, or the winery yeast, because ultimately the strongest yeast wins. And um, uh, it's not the, the ideal that the yeast could be, the fermentation could be managed just from the vineyard and that your source, your connection to the land is true, is that's flawed, but there's a lot of data on that. And I knew in 2019 that wasn't going to be successful, so I had to change that plan. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that I had the experience of more than, of many fermentation styles. Mm -hmm. So I'm using that as an example of every vintage you, winemakers should, to be successful, I needed to stay flexible. And sometimes that meant changing the plan and buying a bunch more yeast than we planned. That was kind of a bummer, but um, I, that's, that's a, the great thing about working with a raw agricultural product, that every year it can be a little bit different, and that can dictate style even more so than, than a winemaker's influence. You talked about winemaking philosophy and how it obviously can't, can't be dogmatic in that kind of situation. Uh, with the, the kind of the, the, the sort of the house style you had talked about earlier, uh, were you aiming for a desired outcome when it came to the wine or were you trying to be kind of more adaptive to year-to-year -year variation were you aiming for a product that you mentioned sales and marketing department have a wine they want to sell your club members have a wine they're used to 
how do you balance that kind of I have a goal in mind versus this is what the vintage is telling me? Yeah, the Dobbs program is fantastic because there's um, a lot of different programs. Some of them that need to be tied to a single vineyard that sometimes the vineyard has one block and you have to turn that block into the best interpretation of that vineyard and have success. Very limiting uh, to one location. The single vineyards, instead of putting all the grapes in one basket that I thought that would be most successful, I would take that and divvy it up into a bunch of different things. And one, back to yeast selection, a lot of people think that uninoculated fermentations are the best representation of a vineyard. That's like the terroir, that's the culture of that vineyard. But that's one data point. And one data point doesn't make a, a, a line of best fit. It can be an outlier. Two data points are an outlier, could be two outliers too. Until you get three data points, three data points you can draw an average from. And the more data you have, the more diversity you have in production, the more you can find the common thread, the common trend, the line of best fit. And I tried to make as many fermentations as possible so I could see what's the common theme in this vineyard. Regardless of the yeast style, this personality is consistently expressed. I wanted a lot of data so I could choose the best thing that represents that vineyard. And so that's an example for the single vineyards. I wanted to express the vineyard personality, but I wanted more data on that. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other wines that were blended to be consistent, blended from, it didn't matter the vineyard. It, we needed a tannic version of Pinot Noir, a, a lighter bodied version of Pinot Noir, less tannin, and uh, no holds barred, everything, the, the more the better style of Pinot Noir. And those could be blended from vineyards all over the place. So um, that was a little bit more flexible. I could just make sure that I consistently got those personalities from that vineyard. Um, some of the more limiting versions were small lots of white wine that you had like, um, it all naturally just fit into one tank. And those are probably the most restrictive. And that's why <clears throat> having worked there for, um, a number of for nine years prior to taking on the winemaking position, I had a lot of example, a lot of history with those vineyards. Uh, so it's like a relationship. The longer you, the ups and downs that you go through, the more you can predict and be successful and adapt. Um, and when I got into a new vineyard, because it was one of the great things that I I got to add a bunch of new vineyards. Uh, when I started as winemaker. And w in those situations, I broke them into a bunch of different pieces and figured out what's the common thread. So um, as long-term relationships are important to be able to predict the outcome. Mm -hmm. A lot of data is important to find the line of best fit and doing better, finding the weakest points and, and making them better the next year. That was, that, that was the expectation to make as many different versions as possible and then, then blend to fit. Mm -hmm. You mentioned adding vineyards uh, as winemaker. Tell me uh, in that role, what is, your, what is your sort of vineyard relationship and what were you looking for as you added vineyards to the program? In two, uh, 2017 was warm vintage. We've had more warm vintages than not in Oregon and anticipating that I wanted more cool sites and we, the Dodge Stanley Estate program is fantastic because it has an ABA series where we get to dial in the personality of an ABA of a growing region. We get to dial in the single vineyards and use that as a unique expression within a growing region. But uh, we got to work with 
Southern Oregon vineyards as well and work with Grenache and Syrah and Viognier and um, Grenache Blanc. I wanted diverse, a diverse program. I knew that the, vin the vintages were getting warmer and I wanted cooler vintages, cooler sites. Um, and I wanted to work with the Columbia Gorge in the Columbia Valley as well because that was an experience that I had had through the McMenamins program which worked both Southern Oregon and the Columbia Valley and to, to really a lesser extent the Willamette Valley. So I wanted um, more warmer spots and more cooler spots to average things out from each vintage. And I looked at north facing slopes <clears throat> and I looked generally at smaller vineyards because um, I think it's great when 10 wineries work with the same vineyard and get 10 different expressions. People get to learn a lot about that vineyard. But I <clears throat> wanted to make sure that unique stories were being told. Mm -hmm. So uh, I looked for north-facing sites like uh, Jorgensen Vineyard, Doug and Debbie Jorgensen in uh, the Dundee Hills AVA. They have a north-facing vineyard. It had a, that's counterintuitive for the Willamette Valley. Generally, we plant south-facing vineyards to get more sun. I wanted the opposite to have uh, a blending component, but also something to mitigate heat. Mm -hmm. I wanted small, unique vineyard stories to tell, like Duck's Vineyard with uh, Mark and Lori Stevens. It's a five-acre vineyard, and Dobbs got to work with all of the Pinot Noir there. Um, I don't like monopolies, but controlling story and having a unique, a unique opportunity to get uh, unique, uh, the one of a kind type, uh, type wine. I liked that. So I liked working with the owner operator vineyards, but also I branched out and worked with some large vineyard management companies because when one truck breaks down, the other one is there to back it up. And I've worked with some owner-operator situations when the truck breaks down and you're in a bad situation. <laughs> so it was all about diversification. Mm -hmm. Diversi diversification in vineyard style and vintage variation, diversification in owner-operator personality and um, having the, all the tools to get the job done. It wasn't a dogmatic mentality that we needed to work with small, small, small spots in the Dundee Hills because that gets the, the most price at the end of the day. I wanted variation, and I wanted to tell some underdog stories too, something that somebody else wouldn't normally pursue. I wanted those unusual stories to tell. So let's talk about 2020 a little bit. Uh, your uh, four, fourth, I guess, fourth vintage as a winemaker 2020. Uh, tell me about that year from sort of uh, pandemic on and through harvest and the unique challenges of it and the decisions and uh, decisions you had to make and the kind of the outcomes of those decisions. Yeah, 2020 was challenging for a lot of reasons. Uh, poor conditions at Bud Break, which lent, leaded to uh, inconsistent berry size and cluster size uh, and low yields. Of course, the pandemic and challenging situations wearing masks and social distancing and um, working from home occasionally and the fires of, at harvest were challenging. I think most people are familiar with that. The point that I want to make about 2020 is that um, bailing on fruit plans wasn't the goal, but having data to support that conclusion and knowing how, what fruit is going to be able to be saleable and be made into good enough wine was really important. So uh, Brad Winter and Danny Lafayette uh, both put in a tremendous amount of work 
test giving us data. We go out and pick the grapes, uh, samples, do mini fermentations, and get them dry enough so we could evaluate them. And if they were smoky at that point, uh, like to, to a flaw, to a detriment, we needed to be working on not picking those grapes and, and cushioning that blow to the, to the grower, uh, and also finding replacement grapes. Um, figuring out how to make the best style of wine to outcompete smoke, mm -hmm. the most, most aromatic, the most fruity, the most forward, and using commercial, commercial yeasts that had been proven to do that was an important tool in my, in my database to make strong, successful wines. Mm -hmm. I had worked with smoky vintages previously in 2017 and 2018. 2017 in the Eagle Creek Fire, we had a custom crush client with fruit from, from that area. Uh, in 2018, the fires in the Rogue Valley um, impacted fruit, and I had learned a lot of very technical lessons from that. Mm -hmm. And going into 2020, we knew we wanted to make as good of wines as possible, but that came with data. So mini fermentations and mitigating smoke, and there's what I learned from that is if it's smoky, there's generally not not something that you can do to get away from that. And that's kind of a darn shame. <laughs> and, uh, but just because the region is smoky doesn't mean everything's gonna go in the garbage. It's very site specific. And it's about distance and duration from smoke. And also, we learned a lot about sensitivity to smoke. People's sensitivity to smoke completely varies. And it varies on their familiarity with it, their preference for that. Some people like smoky things. They like smoky scotch. They like smoky barrels. They like smoky food. They like cigarettes. They like cigars. Those people kind of like smoky wines. It was OK. But we couldn't rely on all the smokers of the world to suck down the 2020 vintage. Um, but we found that some, vin some vineyards were far enough away from the smoke and had low enough um, duration of smoke impact that it was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, also, masks were important. It was challenging to do manual labor wearing masks in the winery. It was hot, smoky, and I, got, I had worked a lot of construction wearing masks and respirators. I'd worked on roofs and in dusty, hot environments, and I, was, I, was, I knew that I could get through that, and that as a team we could get through that. As soon as um, masks were avoided, there was challenges with COVID. Mm -hmm. And I'm reassured that as a team, we were able to get through harvest without a uh, COVID outbreak in, um, in the winery, both 2020 and 2021. So we'll talk about that next. Um, you mentioned you leaving Dobbs in 2021. So tell me about uh, uh, what, what led up to that and, and the next step for you. Yeah, I haven't been um, leaving little bits along the trail to trace back to this, but my, my interest in leaving production started really quickly in my career. The first harvest in 2003 was wonderful. It was, you know, every day was fantastic. I never wanted to quit. Uh, harvest in 2004, fantastic. Excellent time. Still having a fantastic time back in Oregon, closer to family, loving every bit of it. 2005, 2006, the unreasonable conditions of Oregon's wine industry were starting to nag on me. And art, agriculture, and science, the things that support my passion for life were there, but some of the things seemed like kind of a waste of time. Like, 
the inefficiencies of of a small industry mm -hmm. and how important is wine that we need to stress everybody out so much? Why are we so precious about wine? It's, it's very simple to make good wine. Mm -hmm. The modern wine industry does a great job at that. A lot of people think that winemaking is so mystic and romantic and so uncontrollable. You're so lucky when things work out. We know a lot about, we know a lot about wine. And it's really pretty functional and very easy to understand. We don't need to make wine so precious. It's food, it's drink, and I thought, like, why am I so, why, is this, why does this need to be such a struggle? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's better things to do with life than make wine. Because at the end of the day, we weren't solving the world's problems. We're making a beverage. It's generally a pretty expensive beverage. It's something that's misunderstood by a lot of folks. But it's very agriculturally based. Like, mm -hmm. Why is there a discrepancy between farmers and wine drinkers? Why do wine drinkers not have the same hands as farmers? And why are farmers not drinking the wine that they, get, that they grow? I was challenging myself with those questions when I was working long hours and not seeing my family, not seeing friends and my wife. And, and also, like, I like building a family through harvest. I've said that a couple times. But like all families, um, wine families are a little dysfunctional. And that was challenging in the middle of harvest. And in like 2006, 2007, particularly in 2007, that was a stressful vintage. I didn't give up because of that. I thought, OK, I got to make this better for myself. So I worked harder. I, I started studying more. And when I started at Wine by Joe, there was this, all this opportunity. And it was just like nothing but up. But by, over those years, I thought I could probably do something else. I could probably do something else. And about 10 years ago, I looked back on my professional skills, and I thought, if I left the wine industry, what would I have? I have a lot of forklift skills. The forklift skills, I'm a very good forklift driver, <laughs> but the wine industry is a very uh, niche set of skills. Like, if you go down that route, you need to be prepared to just use those routes. It's kind of a long-term investment. And I didn't really want to be a full-time forklift driver all respect to forklift drivers. They do excellent, important things for our communities and businesses, but that's not what I wanted to do full time. A couple years after that, once I got into more people management and public speaking, I thought, well, I could be a public speaker and a people manager. Mm -hmm. I thought, kind of a nuts and bolts guy. I don't know if I want to manage people. And public speaking is usually not a full time gig. So I was struggling with, like, what the heck am I going to do if I don't do wine or if I don't do wine making? And that's when I started pursuing some of the uh, continued certifications that the wine industry has. I had been listening to the Guild Psalm podcast. And I have some good things and bad things to say about that, but I won't go off on that tangent at the moment. Um, I learned about the Court of Master Sommelier's certification. And in 2012, I took the entry level test and passed it. It was easy. And it was like a new frontier for me. Like, wow, I can keep going to school. I can keep learning and get better credentials. And, I have a thing, uh, another saying that I have in the wine industry is there's a lot of opinions in the wine industry. Certify your opinions. Lots of people are opinionated about wine. Prove that your opinion is valid, that it's educated, and that it's peer-reviewed and critically reviewed. I wanted to critically review my wine knowledge. So I, took a, I passed the entry-level thing for the court, which was easy. But really quickly, like that was a two-day course over the weekend. And there was something slimy about it. I didn't like it. I didn't like the suits. 
I didn't like the unnecessary tradition of serving women before men. I don't think there should be gendered service in restaurants. I don't think that you should have to pour the women before the men in a clockwise fashion. Like that's compulsive. <laughs> I think that it's ridiculous that we have those traditions built into the things. Now is the time to do better. And we don't need suits and we don't need gendered service and we don't need foil cutters and all this fluff. Wine is expensive and we're only making it more expensive by restricting access in restaurants that way. And I got fed up with that quick, but I didn't quit. I studied for the level two and failed handily because I was poor, I hadn't done tableside service. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was very good at sensory and I needed to work better on, on theory, but I didn't pass level two. But the idea was that in 2012 when I pursued that certification, I thought, what if I get out of production and I work service? I'd like to educate, I'd like to teach people about wine, I'd like to provide a service. I loved serving people, I liked working in uh, coffee shops and I knew that people um, felt good when they got good service. And the court of Master Sommiers is so much focused on service. But really quickly it felt pretty grimy. And I, I think my insight was appropriate because there's a lot of crummy things that the court of Master Sommiers has, has turned into. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to them doing better. Mm -hmm. um, so I took a break on, I pursued the, uh, the Society of Wine, uh, the Certified Special of, Specialist of Wine Program, the Society of Wine Educators mm -hmm. Program, and it seemed like a memorization uh, game to me. It was memorize all this information, take the multiple choice test, get the certification. And I wanted more investment. I wanted something to challenge me to reproduce my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, uh, we're leading on to why I'm getting out of the, we're leading up to getting why I got out of production here uh, to keep myself on, on track. Uh, in 2020, um, because COVID, I needed to work from home sometimes. Mm -hmm. And with my home work-life balance, that wasn't great for regular hours. So I turned it into a seven day a week, like seven days a week, six hours a day, something like that. And in the off hours, I was able to take a course through the Wine and Spirits Education Trust through Linfield University and get my level three certification. I had considered level two, but I had seen other people kind of stroll through that, and I wanted the, the greater challenge of the sensory part of the exam, and I passed with distinction and did really well. And I thought, okay, I probably need to do the diploma, but a lot of people who try to do the diploma while they're working full time have a hard time with it. There's a lot of, um, People who do the diploma, the level four for WSET, are challenged by that because they don't have enough time for it. And I wanted to make sure I had enough time for it. Simultaneously, I was kind of at my limit for dealing with the diplomatic bureaucracy of working, making the right wines for the right program for the right publicity. And I'd made a lot of wine and been very successful with that and felt that felt great. I knew that that was accomplishable, even in challenging vintages. Mm -hmm. And I valued the science, I valued the teamwork, I valued the facility that was very well suited for, for large and small production. But every year, that like, oh, harvest, harvest is kind of a deal breaker. I wish I had more time with friends and family. I have a lot of family birthdays and a lot of family significance that happens between September and November, and I was losing that, and also like, 
having grown up in Oregon, fall is one of the most beautiful times of the year. And I found myself viewing fall from the crush pad. And I thought, one of these days I'm going to retire. And then I can go hiking. I can see the salmon run. I can go mushroom hunting. I can celebrate my family's birthdays. I can be there for my kid. Because the harvest happens at the same time as school. And I had gone through school and got right into harvest. So every fall, it was frantic and busy. My wife's a teacher. My parents were teachers. My mother-in-law is a teacher. My older sister was a teacher. So education was really important for me, and I wanted to be there to support my family in, in its transition to, into school. And that wasn't an option with Harvest. I, there's a lot of great things about winemaking, and being a winemaker is a privileged position. In 2017, I loved that, but I also took on the hours of a winemaker. And to make things reasonable for my team, to make sure they always had direction, including written, uh, and make things reasonable, make things planned, make things expected, I would work the whole harvest straight until all the fruit was in and the last fermentation was pressed. And that meant 40 days, and not 48-hour days, not 40-10-hour days, 40-12-plus-hour days. And I am a very hard worker, and that was successful for me. It also left me as a not person for my family. And that was a deal breaker for me. I needed to be there for my wife, for my kid, for my family. And it was too much focus. And I, but I, I built a lot of reasonable things into the system to make it better for everybody. And I'm proud to have my marriage. I'm proud to be a good dad and proud to be a good family member and proud that my team never rebelled or revolted or mutinied me during harvest. In fact, really quickly, the folks that I had worked the longest with said, that was the easiest harvest I've, I've ever worked. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, they told me I'm very, they were very appreciative for the direction and how reasonable I made it. And that was super rewarding to lead up to a peak in my career that was the most reasonable it could be. Winemaking in Oregon is unreasonable. And winemakers need to make it more reasonable. So other people think that it's a good thing to get into. So I'd had this dissatisfaction about harvest and kind of like, how important really is wine? Why are we so precious about wine? I want to make things better. I want to educate people. I want to remove some of the myths and confusion about wine in the wine industry. And these certifications helped me prove that. And I've been applying for a lot of other jobs over the years. I think uh, interviewing is a professional skill, so I'm happy to have this experience. Uh, but I would interview every 18 months or so with another winery and had plenty of opportunities to leave. But Wine by Joe always had potential for growth and it was always doing better. So like that's a mantra of mine. Now is the time to do better and I was doing better. So why leave when things could be better? And also like if it's, if it's not getting better, how about I do something to make it better? So it turned into a bit of a cyclical argument though. It's like if I'm not satisfied with it, it's my responsibility to make it better. Once I do better, I'm more satisfied. So I never could convince myself to leave the opportunity at Wine by Joe until these, this mounting concern of a reasonable fall time at fall, a focus on education and more opportunity, and uh, a transition in a career. And the WSET certification level three helped me understand how I could improve my education. In 2019, I applied to an assistant instructor position for a, for a wine program, and I didn't even get an interview. And I thought, I've got 
a lot of experience in the industry, 16 years, a degree in food and fermentation science. How could I not even get an interview? I, I was really, I was angry, and, but ultimately I was discouraged. And I, it, I took it on me to do better. So that's, I, the, the following summer I got the, the WSET level three and um, I knew that I couldn't do level four without, while working full time. So I took this pile of information and I have to say, like, uh, I'll get around to saying some fairly critical things about the Oregon wine industry. And my, uh, my choice to leave winemaking, I could have made wine for the rest of my life. I loved it. It's, the, it's built of the important things that make me me. But I wanted things to be more reasonable for a lot of, reason, for a lot of people, including myself. And I wanted more opportunity to do better. And after 20 years, I thought, I'm going to work at least another 20 years. I think I want to do something else. And I want my, I want my falls back, because it's a beautiful time of year. I want to be with family. So 2021 was my last harvest. I departed Dobbs Family Estate shortly after um, getting the crew into a reasonable schedule, which meant no evenings and no weekends. I worked my 42 days and hung up my winemaking belt and moved on to the next thing. So all that information you gave us gives me an idea of what the next thing is so, and, and why. But tell us what you were looking for at that point and, and what, was in, what was important to you about the next thing you did. The next thing I did, uh, I, I, the next thing to do would be to get more education. I love, even though I'm a poor, I'm a not good student, I don't sit still well in a classroom. I, want, I was learning all the time. and. Um, I'd been learning a lot from the Oregon Wine History Archive through the podcasts. I've listened to all the podcasts and it was like a routine thing for me to listen to it, but I had found all these other wine podcasts too and I thought, wow, there's like this whole other world of wine education and I want to be a wine educator because my parents were educators and my wife's an educator and my mother-in-law and my older sister were educators. I love education and helping people learn. It's a service-oriented thing and I wanted to be committed to that, but I needed to get some better credentials. Like I'm, I know a lot, but that doesn't mean I'm a good educator. <laughs> it's a, there's a lot about control and timing and not going off on too many tangents and little bite-sized things that are translated well for folks. So uh, I want, it needed to be education and I wanted to pursue the WSET. I couldn't do that working full-time, so I transitioned to part-time work when I, while I enrolled uh, with the diploma program. And I've been working on the diploma since uh, January, past level one. Barely passed. That was production and viticulture. I didn't get distinction. I didn't get merit. I got. I passed, and that was definitely humbling. So I doubled down and worked harder on level two. But it's a two-year program, 18 months at least, and um, the hope is that I can make my understanding of wine better, so I can convey that to other people and help them understand the industry better. And I did that by finding. Uh, by finding a part-time job in the wine industry in sales and education. I had seen a post for the Portland Wine Cellar back in the summer of 2021 and thought it would be not great to leave right before harvest, so I didn't, I didn't apply. But then I saw it again during the harvest of 2021 and I thought, this is perfect timing. I, I need to do this. It gives me part-time work, keeps me in the industry, keeps me learning, keeps me exposed to a different side of the industry, sales and retail. And I had done a, <clears throat> a virtual tasting with the Portland Wine Cellar and Aaron Palmer is the owner of the, recently interviewed her. And it was fantastic. Like there was, uh, 
a very easy camaraderie working with Erin that one time. And we had seen each other in the summer of 2021, and I thought I could definitely work with her. Um, I also thought, like, this is another small business that seems a little bit bootstrapped. And the person seems enthusiastically uh, committed of the way a lot of Oregon wine owners are. And I thought, oh, I'm probably getting myself into another one of those little Oregon wine businesses. But so many things worked out. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, Aaron's, Aaron's also been teaching uh, community college classes through PCC, wine enthusiast classes, wine education classes. And I thought, maybe after a year of working with her, I can work the PCC classes. A month and a half after I started there, she said, Andy, you're really interested in wine education. I'd like you to help me with the PCC class. I was like, a month and a half in, right on. And also, uh, I haven't been laboring too much on this, but sustainability is super important to me. And there were some deal breaker situations for me with sustainability in the wine industry that I was like, I'm done with it. Why can't these people understand? I, gotta, I need to advocate for sustainability and make things better. There's just some poor, poor choices that the wine industry is, is making around sustainability. So I had been not ranting, but alluding to those comments with Erin. And she said, Andy, I see that sustainability is really important to you. I'd like you to have a platform for sustainability. And I think that we should call it Sustainability Sundays. And every week, you can make a post on Instagram, a one minute video. I was like, one minute, how am I going to get anything in one minute? It's been like an hour and a half, and I'm still talking. I can't do things in one minute, folks. But it was a challenge. She was like, I want you to teach, help me with PCC. I want you to have a platform for sustainability. A month and a half into working with this new employer, every day was better. And I would, I would come into work, and Aaron would say, how's your day going, Andy? And I was like, every day is better. It's like 20 years into my career, and every day is getting better now that I've made that change. I was like, I think I made the right choice. And I would come home at the end of the day, and instead of being working longer than I anticipated and struggling through challenges, I'd come home and say, what can I do for you? Angie, my wife, how's your day going? I'm ready to help. And all I had all, these, all this energy to redirect. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. The best thing a supervisor or a boss can do is look for a person's natural interest and give them opportunity. And I couldn't believe within a month and a half, Aaron had identified what was important to me, how to make it better, and how to do good for the, her business with it, too. It was incredible. Uh, so. Every day is a little bit better, and I have a platform for sustainability and wine education while I work part-time to finish uh, educating my, myself further through WSET. So I'm, I'm curious before, I'm gonna come back to a lot of that, so before we get to that, I'm curious about, you're seeing the, you're seeing the, the other side of the industry, you're seeing the sales side, the retail side. Uh, tell me about how that has gone so far and what, what you've been kind of interested to learn about it from, from your perspective? Well, I've heard that it's really hard for small wineries in Oregon to sell wine. And I've definitely seen why. <laughs> Distributors uh, dilute the message that passionate people use to sell wine. Oregon wine needs to be sold with an emotional investment. And distributors in the United States, it's a, the three-tier system is challenging and so forced and labored and because of distributors swallowing up other distributors, it ends up with these sales reps that have too much wine to sell. They can't understand the story, and they don't do a good job selling it. I'm not 
criticizing their ability to do, to do good, but they have too much to do well. And some of them are doing a fantastic job. Like I have the fortune to work with some great sales representatives. But independent owner-operator wineries who go out to sell their winery are driving all over the place for that, that sell of like a case of wine mm -hmm. a month or maybe two cases of wine. And there's so many options. And I've seen that even though Oregon produces 1% of the wine in the United States, which is a very small drop in a very big bucket, it's very challenging for people to smell, sell a small amount of wine. And I had heard that, but now I'm seeing the practical side of it through retail sales. I had done a small stint of that doing a sales rep for a former Custom Crush client, and it's super challenging. Like People don't understand the story. They don't see the value in it. It's too expensive. It's going to be a hand sell every time. Where's the economy in Oregon wine? Mm -hmm. Why does it need to be so precious? It could, should just be affordable. But uh, there's a lot of things that make it challenging to sell, and I'm seeing that practically. I'm also seeing um, the interest of customers, like sustainability is super important to me, but mainstream grapes and names are what's important for customers. Most customers want to buy what they're familiar with, what they recognize. 80% of the wine in the world is produced by about 20 grape varietals. And I think that it should be more diverse than that, more interesting, but con customers want consistency, they want familiarity. Wine is a part of their emotional connection and once they find that brand, they just want, they generally, they frequently want to go to that again. Um, and I, I'll start using some of my visual aids you your, here. You brought your props. Yeah, so I brought visual aids. Uh, that's a part of being a good educator, is having visual and verbal and written. So I wanted uh, more, more dynamic stuff. So this book is important to me, Jason Wilson's uh, book, uh, Godforsaken Grapes, where he goes about t teaching. There's like over 1,300 vinifera varieties in the world. And we make wine, the vast majority of wine in the, in the world is made from about 20 of them. And this book is about the, uh, the ones in excess of 20. It's a great book. And diver selling diversity is important for me. And encouraging people to think beyond the 20 mainstream varietals uh, and, and, and winemaking regions. Because most customers come in looking for something they're familiar with and comfortable with. And the opportunity in a small retail shop is to meet the customer where they're at, learn what they need, and offer them something new. Mm -hmm. and it's super fun. Uh, so those are some things that I'm learning about retail. And I, they're good and bad, but ultimately there's opportunities to do better. And I love that. So sustainability in wine. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, obviously a passion of yours. I'm curious about some of the kind of uh, what led to your kind of realization about sustainability and what kind of the, the platform, with the platform you have now, what are you most, what do you find most important to, to convey? I, sustainability in the wine industry is super important. Many people focus on vineyards and the impact on the land. And that's super important. But some wineries will champion sustainability in the vineyard kind of champion it in the winery, but then they'll stick their wine in a heavy bottle with unneeded packaging. And they'll do that because it adds visual value and biased value to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad decision. Uh, I understand why it's done, because sales and marketing departments need to sell their wine, and it needs to be different. It, it needs, they need to sell wine in a 
crowded marketplace. I don't think we really need more wine brands. We have a lot. We have a, a lot of wines to sell through an awkward, an awkward program. That's one of the many reasons that why I didn't start my own label, because another white dude making wine in a privileged environment wasn't what I wanted to sell. Somebody else can add diversity to the industry. I'm not going to do that. I could do it in winemaking style, but I think wine industry needs to look a little bit different than me. I didn't want to contribute to that pile of wine. And sales and marketing departments have a hard time differentiating their wine from other products in the industry. And distributors don't help with that. Distributors say, your premium product should look like other premium products so other people think that it's premium. And that's interesting, but it doesn't always champion the values of the winery. And the values that I want in a wine product are sustainability in the vineyard, sustainability in the winery, sustainability in the packaging, sustainability for people. It needs to be reasonable. And one of the things that I think is a huge highlight of a, an easy message to convey to people that sustainability is important is to take away excess packaging. The bottle weight doesn't need to be more than a pound for glass bottles. It shouldn't be more than 500 grams. That's, it's wasteful. Uh, cork finished bottles don't need foils. Foils are a vestigial tale of old world tradition that isn't valuable anymore. Foils protected uh, access to the cork from rodents and insects. They also showed pedigree or pro provenance of the winery. You can do that with a branded cork. And also like forging wine and reselling it is kind of a 1% problem. I don't think many wineries need to deal with that 1% problem, especially if it's DTC, direct to consumer, and most Oregon wineries are. The foil isn't needed. It's a vestigial tale, it's a waste of time, and it's a waste of um, material and money, and it's lying to the consumer. It's putting a message on the bottle that isn't true. We don't need a foil. It does, it does nothing. It has no functional um, asset except for aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I'm not much of an aesthetician. And I think uh, those who get hung up on those things are doing a disservice to sustainability. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I was trying to convey that message to folks. And they said, I don't know. I think the distributors have it right when we, they say that our premium product needs to look like other premium products. It's like, well, my premium is sustainability. And Oregon has, by and large, a very sustainable focus. Uh, and removing the foil would add that message. When you're sustainably farmed in the vineyard and doing good things in the winery, treating your people right, choose a lighter bottle, take the foil off. Those are fo big focuses that I want. And I was hitting a wall with that. And I had been championing that for quite a while. So it was relieving and rewarding when I met Erin, and she said, here's your platform for sustainability. You can tell everybody about it. And we got 48 likes when I made a video about foil free. 48 <laughs> likes on Instagram. It's not that great. But the people who liked it uh, really liked it. And we go and we talk to people about sustainability, talk about package weight, talk about uh, the, the, not, the unneeded foils. But there's another, another um, component to the wine industry that needs improvement. And I brought this as a visual aid. Um, the screw cap, uh, the wine industry started using the screw cap like in the 80s, especially in Australia and New Zealand. They've championed it and it did a really important thing. It made a consistent closure that prevented uh, TCA taint in wine. That's really important. But it has a classic flaw, an ab a really unfortunate flaw. 
of the cork of the screw cap is wasted. It's not needed. And it's there to mimic the look of the foil that's left on the bottle after you cut it. It was a stupid decision for the wine industry to make this type of screw cap. It was an aesthetic decision made by aestheticians who chose to drag their feet through tradition while they created innovation. 50%, these uh, screw cap weighs about four grams. Two grams is waste. And this little ring right there at the top, that's the anti-tamper ring. Everything below it is not needed. The wine industry needs to, the wine industry needs to change that right away. There's 100% options for screw caps that are less wasteful. And in any system, any business person should understand that when you can decrease your waste by 50%, it's a good decision. In foil-free situations, when you can decrease your waste by 100%, it's a good decision. Foils are expensive. The average 6,000 case Oregon winery could save $24,000 a year by removing the foil and conveying, and conveying truth and integrity to the consumer. Those things I'm super passionate about. And the wine industry could easily do better. Of, of course, um, these things really add up to not that much waste, but it's an easy decision. I think that easy decisions are good business decisions, especially when they save money and decrease waste. Uh, bottle weight is huge. Alternative packing is, packaging is huge. Uh, Aaron gave me a platform through the Portland Wine Cellar to create Sustainability Sundays, one-minute videos every week on sustainability. We've done, we've done them since January. And all that, if you're interested in more of that, about that, you can go there on Instagram to take a look out of it because I'll, I'll save some time now by not going down too, too, too far a road. But we reviewed live and biodynamic and organic and um, regenerative agriculture and packaging. Uh, and then we got into highlighting wineries and giving them credit for doing a good job. So it's super rewarding and challenging to fit all of this into one minute. <laughs> I have to keep myself in check sometimes. So uh, that, with that said, tell me about the Oregon wine industry. Obviously, we've, we've come in and out of talking about the industry at large or around kind of your story here. Um, tell me about sort of the, the good and the bad of it, what it, look, what it looks like to you now, um, and what, uh, what comes next? What, what, what does the industry look like? What, where, what are the, what are the, the, the best parts and, the, and the, the parts that need to be fixed, and, and what comes next? Right on. So the future of the Oregon wine industry, Oregon wine is getting bigger and smaller at the same time. And I'll explain that. It's getting bigger because we're getting recognition, we're getting some mainstream investors, some folks with money, some folks with ability to get wine out of Oregon consistently, outside of the United States consistently. For Oregon to grow, it really needs to get outside of our neighborhood. We either need to drag more people in here to the state to buy wine, or we need to get out of the, out of the U.S. Unfortunately, we're doing both. Like we're doing a good job. Like Oregon is definitely getting tremendous recognition, and the quality is is going there. It's easy to make good wine with the right tools and the right communication. Uh, so we're doing that. And but. I, I want to use a couple different stories here to explain my frustration with Oregon's growth. The people who founded the Oregon wine industry were unreasonable people. And I mean that as nicely as I can. As I can. They didn't listen to common practice. They didn't listen to um, that there was no infrastructure, that there was nobody interested in that area, that it was too cool. They proved them wrong in many ways. but. 
the people who pack up their lives and put it in a wagon and go across the United States generally are unreasonable people. They want to do better. They're pioneers for a reason, but they generally comes with a character flaw of being unreasonable. And um, I think about, uh, there's this sketch in the Monty Python movie, Search for the Holy Grail. There's this sketch where it's the wedding scene, it's the Lancelot scene, where there's a castle and there's a wedding, and the king is explaining to his son that he didn't always have, he was gonna transfer all his wealth onto his son, his son was gonna marry the neighboring kingdom's child, and they were gonna combine their kingdoms, and he was gonna get all of this, pass on all this wealth, but it wasn't always there, the first, because he built his castle on a swamp, the place that nobody else wanted to build a castle, but he went there because it was more successful for him, and probably because he was unreasonable. So he, he built his first castle, and it sunk into the swamp, and he built the second castle, and it sunk into the swamp, and he built the third castle, and the third castle, son, it stayed, and that's what I pass on to you. And then the kid says, but father, I want to sing, and then he breaks into a singing chorus, no, no, none of that, says the dad, and that's a lot like what the Oregon wine industry is for me. That the unreasonable people who sunk the first castle provided a foundation for the second opportunity to build. And the second opportunity was pretty good. The third opportunity has stuck and everybody knows that it's there. But I think some of the people in the third industry just wanna sing. And they're not really interested in having a kingdom. And they're interested in just kinda lottie dying their way through the industry. I know that's, that may seem mean. And I, I want to say, um, have a little bit of a uh, disclaimer here, that the people that I've worked with and for and around, if you feel that that's a pointed remark, I, I'm not trying to criticize you or attack you. There's a lot of, this is true in the wine industry. And I've listened to a lot of Oregon Wine History archives to, to draw a conclusion from that data. Um, the Oregon wine industry needs to keep running. We're in the pack. We're making progress, we're getting recognition, we can't give up on the things that made us good. The second generation came in with a lot more education and a lot more know-how, and they learned, they learned from the failures of the unreasonable people who started this. And they, we've seen the failed businesses, we've seen the failed marriages, we've seen the second generation not wanting to carry that torch. It's a tough road to hoe. A lot of people don't want that, but we've got this this new energy that can do better, but a lot of folks aren't seeing the lessons of needed education and needed sustainability and some efficiencies. Uh, the Oregon wine industry is in a tough spot for labor. I think the, the wine industry in the world is in a tough, tough spot for labor, but hand harvested grapes is something that Oregon leans on. There's a lot of things that I could say about the challenges of Oregon wine. This is one that I wanna make a point on. Uh, hand harvested grapes, is leans on the backs of less privileged people. When wine buyers and winemakers say that they covet and value and prioritize hand harvested grapes, I think that they should ask themselves, who should harvest grapes? Me, you, my kids, your kids, our family, who should harvest hand, who should hand harvest grapes? Because less privileged people shouldn't be taken advantage of for hand harvesting grapes. And if that comes at planting larger vineyards that are more efficient, that can be managed with uh, machine picking and uh, more progressive, modern viticulture techniques that can uh, manage disease better, 
I think that we should take that opportunity. I understand and value small plots of land and things that have to be done by hand. That's inherent in the, in the industry. But we need to embrace efficiency and because of sustainability, because of cultural sustainability. If the, wine, if the Oregon wine industry wants hand labor, the folks in the industry should be doing hand labor. Like, students should be out there harvesting grapes. That should be a cost of entry <laughs> to get into the industry to go out and do that manual labor. Uh, so that's, that's really important. Oh, yeah, and also, if you're interested in maintaining that system of taking advantage of less privileged people, you should, if you haven't made a donation to Salud or Ivoy, you should do that now, right away. Before you buy your next Oregon wine, that's cost of entry. Support Salud, support Ivoy. That's reasonable. We need to make these systems better. So sustainability, Oregon's future is getting bigger and smaller. And it's been founded by unreasonable people, but we need some folks who want to make it more reasonable, <clears throat> want to make it more sustainable and um, uh, positive for all, everybody involved. And that comes with some innovation. All tradition was once innovation, something new. And it's fine for us to reinvent tradition and find a way to do better. And what's next for you? Obviously, you're in the midst of the WSET for the diploma. I know that's going to take up a lot of your time for the next couple of years. And uh, work with the Portland Wine Cellar. Tell me what you're looking at, sort of uh, beyond that. What's what's sort of your path forward from there? Well, I'd like to be a wine educator, <clears throat> and I'd like to continue with sustainability. I'd like to teach the practical nature of wine. I'd like to take the mystery and romance out of wine. I know people, a lot of people value that, but you have to understand. The romance and mystery of wine just drives up the price point. Once you're a successful and educated consumer, you'll understand that you can consume less expensive wine. That's important. Once it's not a magic show, we can get to business. And I want to teach people how, and also like the romance of wine shouldn't be in not understanding what it is. The romance of wine should be gathering with friends, gathering with people that are important to you having good food and sitting around a table and getting to know each other and, and enjoying life. That's where the romance should be. Not in pulling a cork, not in cutting a foil, not in having somebody wear a suit, present wine to you at a table at a restaurant. All of the romance of wine can happen at home with friends and family and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And the more you educate yourself, the more reasonable that will sound. I'm challenged with the folks who peddle romance and mystery when they could be educating and helping people understand wine on a more personal level. And I'd like to be that type of wine educator. In Oregon, there's some great educational opportunities. There's a very technical route through Oregon State University, and they're fortunate for them working on improving that opportunity, improving their fermentation options and their production space. Chemeketa offers an incredible uh, nuts and bolts, more practical approach to winemaking. And I, I think it should go without saying but I'll say it anyway, Chemeketa is strong because OSU wasn't doing that well. And I saw that personally. Like buckets and carboys and very small, unequipped space. OSU's recognized that. They're investing in it. They're fundraising for that. They're doing better. That's mm -hmm. great. But we needed Chemeketa. And when I, I remember at Oregon State, I was thinking, like if I, 
I knew that I wasn't going to get enough there. I knew that I wasn't going to get the practical, I knew that I wasn't going to get the business, and I knew that it would be better if I had all three of those things. And what I, when I thought about this, if folks spent two years at Linfield, two years at OSU, and two years at Chemeketa, they'd have a six-year solid education before they got into it, and no degree. But if you want, if you want solid experience, spend two years at each college, you know, it'll be great. But I, I don't know if there's one education system that's the best. But also, we need, beyond those formal education systems, we need the continued learning aspect of it, the, the world of wine, not just, not just Oregon wine. And I think that's where uh, these continued education certifications come in handy. And I'm very sold on Wine and Spirits Education Trust because I, I love the, the very formal and academic approach. It leads you into being a very talented wine writer and uh, a, a skilled technical um, evaluator. And that's where, that's where I'm focused on. I'd love to be a, I'd love to work for an approved program provider for the WSET. Uh, I know that the Wine and Spirits Archive in Portland has a great offer, uh, great opportunities. Linfield is uh, making great opportunities. I think that Portland Community College could do that too. And I'd love to, my first year outside of high school was at Portland Community College and I wouldn't mind going back uh, to, to be part of that organization. Um, wine needs to be more accessible and people will enjoy wine more once they, once they learn more about it. It's just, it just gets better. Every day can get better. That's all the questions that I have for you. I know you have some props that we've not gotten to yet. Is there something I haven't asked that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Yeah, I've alluded to a lot of the points that I would have made with this, but, but I'll, 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 I'll go through it briefly, um, just because they don't need to be labored too much. Um, one of the, I used the Monty Python analogy to, to the Oregon wine industry about building the castle and it sinking into the swamp. But there's other versions of like people come to Oregon and they think oh, I'm going to make the most special product ever. And there's, there's an episode in The Simpsons where Homer's on a baseball team, the isotopes, the nuclear power plant has a baseball team. And one night Homer's locked out of his house and there's a lightning strike that hits his tree, a branch falls out of the tree and he knows he needs to make something magical with that tree branch. And he makes a baseball bat, he calls it the wonder bat, and he takes it to the team and he hits home runs every time. And he's very good, and everybody's very impressed with that. And so they start making their own homemade baseball bats. Have you, have you seen this episode? Of course. Uh, they, but, well, for those of you who haven't seen it, and I don't know if this will show up, so I'll describe it anyways. This is a picture of baseball players. One of them has a piano leg. One of them is whittling one of their baseball bat from like a two by four. And one of them has taken his spouse's um, prosthetic leg to use to play baseball. And sometimes this is what the Oregon wine industry is like. People who have found out that there's something special and something unique about having something different, and then they try to go pro with it. And it's, it's, it's bad. And Homer's very successful with his Wonder Bat, but then they go up against people who actually know how to play baseball. And the pitcher throws the ball and it breaks his bat in half. And sometimes that's what the Oregon wine industry feels like that as soon as, like we're fine playing in our minor league and we're fine creating unusual baseball bats, but as soon as you go outside into the real world, you get broken in half. And there's plenty of examples that we've been more successful. We wouldn't be here if we weren't successful and we're doing fantastic things. I don't want to 
throw shade without shedding some light. Uh, but I'm concerned that folks are going to create some weird bats and not do a good job at baseball. So that's one of the examples. The other example is um, I love art and creativity and taking a blank page and adding artistic talent to add value and sharing that with others. And art for me should evoke emotion. When you take raw ingredients, add artistic talent to add value, then you can evoke emotion from other people. And I know that a lot of people drink wine and they evoke emotion because of the alcohol. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about gathering with friends, eating good food, drinking good wine. That doesn't necessarily have to cost much, especially when you value the people you're with. And there's some folks who put so much emotional investment into wine that it's unsaleable. Or they, when they don't sell it, they get frustrated and angry. I've put so much of my heart and soul into this. Um, you should give it. You should enjoy it. You should pay for it. You should support my very small production of wine that's unreasonable. And I, I brought this stack of postcards because I think handmade postcards are sometimes what the, wine, the Oregon wine industry is actually trying to make. My, my older sister is, um, has every, it seems like every bone in her body is artistic. And she created these postcards, which are, they're hidden letters in the postcards and it goes through the alphabet. And while my daughter was learning the alphabet, she would make these cards and send them in the mail. They're, they took a lot of time, but they're very functional too. And I love them and I, I cherish them. And they were really, everything that they were meant to worked out for me. And that's important. But in the wine industry, sometimes people are trying to made, make handmade postcards and sell them at commercial levels. And I think there's a stark contrast between emotionally invested art pieces that you give to your family and friends versus a commercial food product that you process industrially and sell on the open market. Oregon needs to stop making handmade postcards. Pony up and get it done. Um, the other. Uh, the other visual aid that I brought in is this book called The Alchemy of Us by Anissa Ramirez. And there's a lot of fantastic stories in here. She's a, tech, a very talented engineer and scientist, and she's done some incredible things, one of which was write this book, which actually has a podcast form, too, if you're interested in more podcasts. Um, they're little one, they're like three-minute segments on how science has changed the way we live. And the subtext here, the, the subtitle here is uh, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And she has a great story in here where she talks about the influence of light pollution on communities. How at night we can't see the stars very well uh, because there's lots of light and there's a lot of distraction keeping us down here. Down here where we live, where we control everything. We, and this is poignant for me because I just recently spent two nights in Central Oregon where the light pollution is less. I went to the Pine Mountain Observatory with two of my good friends and we saw stars everywhere. And we saw people who were in wonderment of the universe. We all need to take a second to consider how small we are in the universe. And that the things that we do every day should be the best opportunity for the Earth and the best opportunity for sustainability. We need to take the aestheticians out of the equation. We need to take the tradition that's not needed out of the equation. We need to get out in nature. We need to appreciate plants and animals and the stars in the sky and live within that ecosystem. The more diverse it is, the more, um, the, the more happy we're going to be. Humans like to control things. They like to watch TV and fiddle on their phones and drive cars. They like to control their opportunity. But really, 
if you take all that out and just appreciate the things that are naturally available in the world, we'll all be much more happy. And I love Anissa Ramirez's point in The Alchemy of Us about the power of seeing stars. Fantastic. And props. I'm so happy to have visual aids. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all the questions I have. As I mentioned, uh, anything else we need to talk about? Or do we get everything we need to do? Well, I'm glad to have uh, taken care of these examples. The last thing that I'd like to say is thank you. The Oregon Wine History Archive is a real treasure. I'm encouraged that more people will be involved with it. I think that as Oregon wine industry progresses, I think that every Oregon wine website should have a link to the Oregon Wine History Archive. You should go do that now if you're in charge of sales and marketing for your winery's website. Um, because it's fantastic. I've learned a ton from it, and it's helped me understand my opportunity in the industry better. It's helped me feel less crazy because I thought, like, this is crazy, right? And then I see, like, oh, yeah, those people are definitely crazy. They're having a hard time. And then other people are like, this is super challenging, and I overcame it by, because I kept running, and I kept educating myself and doing better. So the Oregon Wine History Archive is fantastic. I think you've done an incredible job involving people other than owners and, and winemakers. Uh, sales and distribution and tour guides and folks with very little experience in the industry who are nothing but optimism and others who kind of look back and have some criticism of it but want to do better. Oregon is going to get better. The Oregon Wine History Archive is an essential part of documenting that history and everybody should have a link on their website to that. I appreciate being here. Well, we really appreciate you being there and appreciate you saying that. And we'll, we'll give you your check off camera so it's not quite so obvious. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we appreciate that. And, and thank you so much for being part of it. And thank you for being one of our, our biggest consumers as well. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.